a message from our sponsor, Ingram Barge Company. Calling all pilots in the Gulf region. Ingram Barge Company is offering a $5,000 sign-on bonus for pilots interested in living board positions. We offer a variety of schedules including 28 and 14, 20 and 10, and 21 and 21. Applicants must have a Master of Towing Vessels license with Inland and Western Rivers endorsements. Ingram offers a competitive benefits package and 401k with company match. Apply today at www.ingrambarge.com. I am joined today on Between the Levees by Mr. Steve Alley, the now retired Vice President of Dry Cargo Sales for Ingram Barge Company. Mr. Alley, thank you very much for your time today. You're welcome, Tim. I believe you said you've seen a few episodes. You know the format. Where were you born, sir? I was born in Cincinnati, um, born and raised in Cincinnati in 1956, second oldest of five. I have a sister and three brothers. Uh, one of my brothers is deceased. He died in the 2013 of a aortic aneurysm. Um, an older brother and then uh, the younger brother and uh, one sister. Um, I was raised in a, a neighborhood of a bunch of row houses on the west side of Cincinnati. Um, pretty much a blue collar neighborhood. Uh, pretty much a Catholic neighborhood. There were um, firemen, police officers, mailmen, bartenders, mechanics, general laborers. Uh, most of the dads worked and the moms stayed home. There were a few families where the dads were no longer around, and so the moms had to work. And uh, at one point, I think there was like 90 kids in my neighborhood that uh, we ran around with all the time. We would get up in the morning, we didn't have school, and we would be outside the entire time. Uh, there was a lot of uh, woods across the street behind the houses over there, and they didn't build there, so we kind of took it over and became our, our uh, place to go hang out all day long. We lived pretty close to a park, too, so we'd, we'd go to the, to the local park, and we'd swim and do all kind of stuff, but uh, it was a pretty... Typical, what I thought to be uh, childhood. Um, my dad was a police officer. He worked um, for many years in undercover. And then, um, I don't remember what, how, when he was a beat cop, but I'm sure he, he had to be at some point. And he um, worked his way up, went to the uh, FBI Academy and um, ended up becoming a detective, a specialist. And so they're doing investigative work after that. Uh, like I said, we, we went to Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, Catholic college, uh, nice little liberal arts colleges around us. Um, so that was my, my life growing up. And I majored in criminal justice. I wanted to be a cop. Um, but that was back in the early 70s, in the late 60s. And Police were frowned upon back then as they are in some instances today. And um, they weren't hiring. So when I got done, I'm like, well, I gotta get a job. So I went to work for a company in Indiana that made um, machine tools. They made shears and press brakes that were used all over the world. They were called Cincinnati Incorporated. I went to work in their um, parts engineering department. 
and we would sell spare parts to the, their customers who owned the equipment. We'd sell parts to the Navy who, who had their equipment and some military bases. So um, my job there was to talk to them and answer any questions they had, get the parts made in the factory, ship them out. And they, we were, they were tied pretty close to the auto industry back then. So when it took a downturn in the late 70s, we were privately owned by two brothers, the March brothers, John and Perrin March. They decided rather than lay off a fourth of their employees, everybody would take a week, a month off. They'd be laid off. Well, my dad being a police officer, he had a lot of time on his hands when he wasn't working. So he had what we call today side hustles. He uh, had a painting business and he had a vending business. So when he wasn't working as a police officer, he was filling vending machines. And some of my fondest memories as a kid was riding around on the hump of the passenger side of the Conaline Ford van, driving all over the city and filling vending machines and dragging change out in bags and putting in the back of the truck, just me and my dad. So he kind of instilled that in me. Uh, so at a young age, I was very entrepreneurial. I had two paper routes growing up, not one. I had a, a grass cutting business, a league raking business, and a snow shoveling business. And I was, like I said, there was a lot of kids in the neighborhood, so I lived in a very competitive marketplace. But I had a group of about 15 uh, older couples or, or women that, that liked me and knew, knew the family, and they were my, my customer base. And so I made pretty good money, actually. One, there was one year when it snowed so bad uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, that my brother and I made more money in one week than my dad made in a month as a cop. So we would come home, and Mom would go, uh, here you go. And we give mom, we know, whatever it took to help pay for the tuition with the schools and all that. So that's it. So anyway, that, he instilled that in me. So when this week, a month came was a layoff, I started three businesses. I, uh, I, I took, bought a couple of pressure washers, had a big Suburban, and I contracted with some of the local school systems to bring a team out every weekend or evening and pressure wash their school buses wash them and wax them on their site with their water and their electricity, just our chemicals and our equipment. And uh, I had about a dozen contracts and I kept doing that. Once you know, we went back to business working full time, we would do that. And um, it was really good money. We could, we could wash a rinse, wash and wax a school bus in like six minutes. So you could go out there and hit 80 of them. And then I'd send them a bill and, and they'd send me the money and I'd, you know, I'd, and I had a couple of my brothers work for me, some of their friends. And then I expanded that business and went into um, uh, the sign business, advertising signs. There was a, a company down in Alabama who made these four by eight foot advertising signs with a big flashing arrow on top. And I could buy them in bulk. So I would have a tractor trailer load of them shipped to my house. And I would sell them to, to small companies, mom and pop operators, or I'd rent them out you know, with, for a monthly fee. And um, I had a backyard full of signs. My kids had to play and when they had friends over, there was just arrow signs off of the backyard. Um, but did that for quite a while. And then because I was involved in those businesses, I wanted to know what the tax benefits were. So I took the IRS tax classes, got certified to be a tax preparer, started up an income tax service for some small businesses around town. 
And then I contracted with a company called HFC and they would have their customers come. They were a loan company. I guess they call them loan sharks today, but they, they weren't uh, you know, kind of like that. And their customers would come in and they'd fill out their information. I would go around every evening after work and pick up the tax returns, go, go back to one of the places, do all the tax returns and then drop them back off. And then I got 75% of the bill and I got 25% of the bill. I did that not so much to make money in the tax business, but to know all the loopholes that you <laughs> take advantage of when you had your own businesses. So I, I did that for a while. Um, and then I was getting, I was a little concerned about that company I was working for. So I entered a blind ad uh, in the paper years ago. There wasn't the, there wasn't an internet. Before we get too far into your, your barge career, uh, was your mother a, a homemaker raising five kids? My mom stayed at home. Um, I think she had some college, but she didn't really talk much about that. Her mom, my grandmother, um, moved in with my parents the day they got back from their honeymoon. And she lived with them until she died when I was 15. She, she lived with us. Um, my mom had a sister who had polio when she was younger. And for a while, she went into the convent for a couple of years, but she, um, she was crippled. She couldn't work much. She worked a little bit um, in an office. She lived with us as well. So we had a, a three-bedroom row house. We had a living room, a, a, a dining room, a kitchen. And upstairs, you had three bedrooms, one a bedroom, a bathroom, and the two bedrooms behind that. So we had... We had what really was seven of us living in a, in a one bath, three bedroom house. And uh, my dad eventually finished off the lower level. My brother and I moved down there and we jury rigged some shower with some hoses and <laughs> whatever. And uh, plus we had our own door to come and go. So <clears throat> we got our independence at a very young age. So there was a lot of that, but that wasn't really uncommon. Um, a lot of our neighbors, there were generationals, uh, people living together. Um, and and our, my neighborhood was mixed. It, it wasn't Irish or German or Italian or, or, or white. Or We had a hodgepodge of, of, of people that lived there in, in the neighborhood. And that's why I guess that's what made it so, so fun. I'm still friends with a lot of those people today because of the Internet and you know, Facebook and other, and other kinds of format of technology that you can reach out to people with. So, um. Yeah, so yeah, she she was a homemaker. Unfortunately, she um, she died young. My mom was sixty seven, and she died of uh, what started out as small cell lung cancer. She was a smoker, and the cancer went to her brain, and we didn't realize it till they tested her for dementia, and realized well, yeah, she had brain cancer at that point and bone cancer, and it was in her lungs, so she didn't last very long after that. And my tough, hardcore police officer dad uh, became this soft, compassionate, loving spouse that we didn't get to see growing up. So I got to see a side of him uh, at, a, at a really time in my life when it was, you know, I was in my early 20s. So um, he was still influencing us in some ways. We got to see how he treated her and, and nurtured her and took care of her until she died. And, uh, it was something that just opened my eyes up to how in love they were. You don't see that when you're growing up because you're a kid and you're, but they were really close. And, um, 
we knew that. Didn't, didn't really know how close until she got really sick. We thought he was going to die a lot before, way before her. He, being a cop, that's a high stress job. And um, my dad had a heart attack at 53. Um, another one at 55. He had bypass surgeries. I think overall he had six heart surgeries between the age of 53 and seven and almost 80 when he when he finally died. And the heart isn't what killed him. He ended up with some other cancer that you know, got in there and, and, and did, it, did it did it to him. So, um, but he had uh, he softened up a lot after he got older and retired from the police department. I guess it makes you hard. And you know, he saw a lot of bad stuff, and uh, he tried to dissuade me from being a cop. Um, so he didn't want to do that. But you know, when you're 22 and out of school and you know, listen. I applied at a couple of uh, municipalities, and I did get an offer for one, but it was more of a wealthy neighborhood in Cincinnati. And you really weren't a police officer; you were just checking the doors, and they were at it, and they were gone six months out of the year. Kind of like being a cop in Brentwood <laughs> or something like that. So, I, wasn't my thing. Well, I mean, the, the the direction toward criminal justice is obvious with a policeman father but were you drawn to anything uh, anything in school growing up or was it always on a career track for criminal justice i always wanted to be a cop um because i just admired what he did i thought that would be i really thought that's where i was being called and it was a like i said we had a lot of seniors that lived in our neighborhood as it was transitioning over to you know younger families would buy in and there was a lady up the street this is uh, caruso and they owned a produce company and she would watch us play ball and whatever out in the, in the street. And we would go sit on her porch. And we'd talk to her. And you know, she'd give us cookies or fruit or whatever. And, and she got to tell me, she said, uh, I told her one day I want to be a cop. She said, no, you want to be a cop. She said, you want to be a salesman. You're a salesman. And I'm like, I'm not a salesman. I'm a cop. And uh, so maybe she saw something <laughs> I didn't see. So I never really, um, I either wanted to be a police officer or I wanted to own my own business. And I was really driven to be um, kind of self-sufficient. And I knew, and maybe I would have got that to this time, I knew if I was a cop, I had, they had a lot of free time. They worked shift work, so that freed up time to maybe chase what deep down was really burning in me. It was to be in my own business and and, uh, be very entrepreneurial, which was actually fed uh, when I got into the barge business and got into sales. Um, that opportunity just it just flooded into me um, from the company. So um, I guess in hindsight, uh, Mrs. Caruso was right. <laughs> it sounds like she knew something you didn't. Uh, so I, uh, did did your siblings follow you uh, into criminal justice or into the bars business or where did they? No, my my older brother um, got into logistics uh, when he graduated. He went to he went to the University of Cincinnati. I didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was massive. I took one class there and it was, I'm like, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm going back to the arts school. It just was too big. Um, so he ended up getting into in the logistical side. Then he got into warehousing distribution and he just retired a few months ago. Uh, bounced around from a lot of different companies. He had about 16 letters after his name, so I'm not sure what all that stuff meant. Um, now, my brother that passed away, uh, he got his master's degree from Xavier University, and he was a, um, a a director of services for nonprofit in Cincinnati. 
uh, called Talbert House. And he did a lot of um, grant writing for their company. He was uh, very successful. I didn't really realize, honestly, until his funeral, how successful he was. He was single, never married at all, uh, dated a lot of gals, just never got married. And when he died, there were literally thousands of people at his funeral, um, homeless people, guys living in the street, ex-military that he took in to these programs. And I found out that he actually bought through grant money to Talbert House. He bought a hotel just outside of downtown and converted it to a rehab facility for homeless vets. And they could move in there for up to two years and they would, you would get them jobs. So uh, it dawned on me then how, how I knew he was a cool guy. Just didn't, didn't realize how cool. He set a program up at the city of Cincinnati on Father's Day. They had this big picnic. And all of these kids whose dads weren't around come to this picnic and their dads would be there for the day and the city would pay for it and Talbert House worked through it. And he just, he was very active in that. And he, like I said, he was, uh, fell asleep watching the Reds on Fox Sports Ohio and had an aortic aneurysm and died in his bed. I found him in his bed. Dead in his bed. My sister went to um, pharmacy school, became a retail pharmacist and she worked in pharmacy her, until her, she career retired, I I think about three years ago, uh, I'm just kind of kind of tired of it, get out of it. I think she's thinking about now doing some free volunteer pharmacy work for one of the clinics here in town. And um, my youngest brother followed his uncles into the trades. My grandfather's in the trades and my brother followed them and he was a um, pipe cover his whole career. Retired really early and went to work at our church, the church that I belong to. We we're looking for somebody to kind of be the property manager. And he do all that stuff. So he's down there. He still works there today. As a, oversees all the maintenance and repairs of the of the campus down there with the church and the school and, and all that stuff. So, no, I was the only one that, uh, if they did, they never talked about it. I was the only one who was telling everybody I was going to be a cop. I was going to follow. And I, you know, uh, I think he knew that. I think Dad knew that. And then I think he just kind of was, um, he take me out on things and, Trying to try and tell me and convince me that I didn't want to be a cop. <laughs> that was just, it was a tough life, and it was a tough life for him. Can so, you tell me about some of those instances? Like, uh, I guess growing up with a with a policeman father, do you have any any memories of anything related to his oh, yeah. job that affected the family? Uh, yeah, he um, he killed a guy um, in the sixties. Uh, was robbing a uh, business. And he chased him down uh, through the woods in the park. And guy pulled a gun out and my dad shot him and killed him. And uh, that affected our family. I think I think that affected him more, even though he was in the war, he was in the Korean War. And I know he, he killed people in the war. He just don't realize the individual people you're shooting in the war because you're just shooting. That's how he explained it. But he said, I know that I shot that guy. And I know that I killed that man. And I think that bothered him. To the day he died. I know it did because he and I would talk about that. So yeah, that impacted us. And then uh, there were the the riots were going on in the late 60s. And like I said, we lived in a mixed, mixed neighborhood in our neighborhoods. So the neighborhood, the neighbors were concerned that, you know, we're going to get some, some rioting in the neighborhood. So I slept with a revolver under my pillow for two years. And uh, he, dad rearranged the bedroom so that my brother and I 
beds look down the steps. So if anybody were to come in, they'd have to go up the steps to get to the my mom and my sister and my grandma and them. And he taught us at a really young age uh, how to shoot and <laughs> yeah, how to hunt and all that stuff. And uh, so yeah, there's 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 things impacted us. They impacted me, I think, to want to be more like him. And I guess it probably impacted my brothers just just the other direction uh, to get away from me. We had, like I said, we had. He had, he had his handguns and all that that he used as a policeman in, in, in the cupboard in the dining room, and you just didn't open that door. You just didn't go in there. And, you know, he, it's the way we were raised. And I think if one of us did, it would have been the last time we did. <laughs> so he was a pretty tough disciplinarian. He was also a judo instructor for the police department. And he went to the FBI academy, so he knew his stuff, and he was he was really well uh, liked. When he retired, there were there were police officers from all over the country that came to his party. Then he went to work for a company in Cincinnati called Cincinnati Financial Corporation. And he did security work there. Like it was some part-time fraud investigation, that kind of stuff. He got to be really good friends with the CEO and the owner of the company. And, um, you know, being a public servant, you don't have a lot of money. Um, you know, they didn't make a lot of money. But he had a little bit saved up. And one day, Mr. Schiff, who was the CEO, asked Dad, do you have any money saved up? And, I said, a little bit. He said, well, give me $10,000. It's like, all right, I'll trust you. So he gave him the money. And a year later, he said, Ralph, I need 10000 more. So over five years, my dad gave him about fifty grand. And when dad retired after 10 years of being there, uh, Mr. Schiff gave him this stock that he'd been buying all these years. Uh, it's just like financial corporation stock. And my dad had probably seven or fifty thousand dollars for the CFC stock when he retired. So uh me my he made more money the last ten years of his life than his whole career. So that money has enabled the family to set up some stuff, some trust and things like that. So it's pretty cool. Pretty cool legacy he left. One he didn't think he was gonna have to he was gonna ever have a chance to leave. So a big influence on me. Sure. A huge influence. After mom died, he, he got a girlfriend and uh, they ran around the, the different places and he had fun and she was right there in the front row when, he, when we had his funeral. So, well, good memories. without a doubt. So fast forward back, you answer blindly to an ad. What did that ad read and who was it for? It was for the Ohio River Company. They were looking for someone to come in and design a maintenance program, a PM program for the towboats. And I had just done that in this other company and actually created a, a BM program that we sold. We would, we would sell these programs to our customers. So you would get certain parts every month that we know we're going to wear out and be need repaired. It would need to be replaced. And inside that package, we we sold them uh, service contracts where we had like, there were probably 300 guys out there that worked for the company that were service techs, traveled all over the country and fixed all the equipment. So for your annual fee, you got, uh, parts, certain number of parts, and you got priority service from our service guys. So they would be there the same day. Uh, we would fly parts all over the country. So I had some experience in, in creating one for that company. So I just put my resume, dropped it in the mail. It was downtown. I would then, I, if I got it, I could just, I could actually take the bus to work, uh, public service, bus system. We lived so close to that. Answered an ad and um, interviewed three or three or four different times. And got an offer and went to work in for Ohio River Company in February of 84 in their vessel engineering department. 
Um, I worked for a guy named Captain Tom Dyer, who some people who will listen to this podcast will remember him. Um, he was my first boss. And I started hopping boats. I get on one boat, identify anything that moved that wasn't wasn't made by you know, that was that was made by a company. Um, I identified all of that, and then um, I reached out to the manufacturers, came up with maintenance programs for their equipment. And over about a thirty-six to forty-two month period, after riding all the boats, getting all this stuff done, it was somewhat automated. Um, we would mail out to the locks, the dams, or um, we used to, we had a single sideband radio or a VHF radio. We also had a radio station back then, and I would send out codes for them that needed to get done over the next thirty days, and they would mail that back in. And we had a clerk that he just keyed the data in, and it would, it would and then we could trend off of there, determine what we needed to plan for dry docks and, and overhauls and you know underwater spares and all that stuff. So after about three, a little over three years, I they, they didn't need me. The job was done. Um, so a guy named Steve Frazier, who was the VP of ops and who went on to be, I think he was ACO's president for a little while. Then he went out West and ran some large company up on the, the rivers and snake river, whatever that is over there. But he said, go talk to the VP of uh, sales. I think you'd do good in sales. I'm like, man, I'm not a sales guy, man. I like getting out and getting dirty and, you know, hanging out with the people on the river. So I went up and met with Earl Fag, and they were happening to, happening to have a sales meeting that week. He invited me that night to a dinner that they were having in one of these fancy high-rise, top-of-the-building restaurants in downtown Cincinnati. So I went home, got my only suit that I had, put it on, and went to the sales meeting, sales dinner. And they're eating filet mignon and drinking bourbon and high-end scotch. And, and I'm trying to save a nickel working in engineering, and they're blowing money left and right on uh, Left there, went home, and my wife, what do you think? I said, I think I found a new career. <laughs> so I went to work in um, the sales department. I worked for a guy named Rick Hyman, who still is in the business. I think Rick works for uh, one of the steel mills up in the Great Lakes now. I think he's probably close to retirement. I worked on the rate desk. So we did costings and analysis and traffic patterns. Did that for a couple of years. And then in the late 80s, the Ohio River Company bought Federal Barge Line. And that took them out of the all coal moving business into the covered barge business, into the grain business. So I transitioned pretty quickly over to that side of the business. We opened up a St. Louis sales office, um, brought in a guy named George Anderson, who was with uh, Valley Line. George uh, ended up being my boss. At one point, he moved to Cincinnati, was our VP of sales, was, and to this day, is still one of my dearest friends. Uh, even though he, I, I worked for him, we were, uh, we were very close. Our wives were close. We still are. Um, he, was a, he was a mentor for me. Didn't like me at first. He thought maybe I was a little too cocky. Uh, I don't know why he would say he would think that. Uh, but anyway, um, he, he ran the St. Louis office. I would travel with him and, and learn from him. And um, I had an opportunity then with, federal, with the acquisition of Federal that not a whole lot of people in the business, in our company at that time knew anything other than coal. The coal was king. You know, 75, 80% of their business was moving coal in the river. And I thought, well, gee, here's something new I can kind of help build. From the, from the bottom up, that entrepreneurial drive in me. So I ran with it. 
within two years, I had P&L responsibility for the entire covered fleet for the company. I hired, hired some people uh, to come work for me in logistics. Uh, we actually had say-so over the dispatchers uh, where covered barges moved based on sales. So I started chasing non-coal business. And uh, the first contract, I, a long-term contract I signed was with Owen Corporation, moving salt out of the Coke Blanche mine, uh, which they did not own, to Charleston, Tennessee, on the Hiawassee River above Chattanooga. And the company let me book that contract, although they didn't know why I wanted to take freight up the end of the Tennessee River. Well, there was um, some steel plants being built up there, and it was a grain company called A.E. Stanley. It was now Tate Lyle in Decatur, Illinois. They had a um, wet milling operation they'd built up there above this plant, this salt company. And they needed barges for outbound byproducts. So I shortly signed a long-term 10-year contract. I think it was the first in the industry um, with a grain company to, at fixed rates to move 100% of their corn into Loudoun from anywhere they bought it on the waterways. And all of the outbound business, they had a, they had a product called a corn gluten feed product, which was the, the hull of the corn pressed together. It was basically just protein. And they had a big sale, big contract with that products being sold to the European market. So we would move the corn in. I had salt barges available if I needed them. If the corn wasn't coming in to reload back out the, the, the corn, the, the byproducts. That's why I did the Olin contract first. And then we did a longer term deal and we built 100 barges just for that trade. We built the OR6200 series barges. There's a few of those left. Those were built for the grain byproduct trade for Staley. We, they were 13 foot hull, six foot combing. We had to put steel lifts on them because we did these big monster grain doors on them. So we built uh, 50 um, funky bow barge. They're not really, the, the bow is only 14 foot bow. So we call them a butt barge because the guy that designed it and boxes. They would, I think they cubed out like 120,000 cubes. They were big barges. They were great for that business. Uh, we put those in that trade for a long-term contract. We started operating their dock form in Loudoun. We ran their in-plant uh, trucking operation. All they did was make corn, and we did all the rest of the stuff there. We moved the coal in for them. They had, some, they had their own coal power plant. That was a big hit. That was a big, big move. We ended up with a bunch of people working there. Um, started signing up other grain companies that didn't own barges to fixed rate contracts, which was unheard of back in the 90s. Everything was done <clears throat> off of a benchmark, which it still is today. The grain freight trade off a benchmark that's been established since 1973. For a few years, I would sit every morning on a call with our St. Louis Merchants Exchange and trade grain freight uh, for two hours or three hours every morning, you know, buy and sell barge freight and and make money or lose money, depending upon how you took your position. I uh, did that for a while and ended up hiring a guy to do that for us. I got in Glenn Dots, who worked for Ingram for a long time. Um, I brought Glenn in from Continental Green. So that led to more, well, gee, since you're doing that, why don't you take over our operation in the Gulf? We have the terminals down or the, uh, the facility at Reserve, and we had all this property we weren't doing, we didn't need it all. So we started um, basically bringing vessels in to reserve. And I ended up 
um, contracting with Associated Terminals to do all of the stevedoring for us at those two facilities. That's how I got to know David Fenley real well and Todd Fuller and Glenn and all of the, them when they were. By the time when Todd was, when I first met Todd, he was he was right out of LSU, and he went to work for David Fenley and a guy named Dan Barker. And uh, the first time I walked in their, in their office, uh, Ingram Ohio uh, was with, was withholding about eight hundred thousand dollars from them. They were disputing something, <clears throat> which I knew nothing about. So I came back and got a check. Went back down and we wiped the slate clean and started from 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 the from new. That stevedoring thing led to me doing since we had these covered barges, I needed to keep them busy. So I signed the contract with New Corium Auto Steel. The mini mill business was just coming on in the late 80s, early 90s. So I contracted with New Corium Auto to move finished raw material in and finished steel out of the Blytheville facility in Arkansas. That led to uh, other contracts with Nucor at Hickman, um, and then into the Ohio to the Crawfordsville facility. I then uh, we had an opportunity then to work with a company called Trico Steel, which was a brand new startup. It was a startup between uh, Mitsubishi, LTV, and British Steel. They were going to build a mini mill in Decatur, Alabama. So I competed against Ingram. He got down to me and a guy named Ronnie Pritchard in Ingram. And then we were competing head to head for this business. And uh, we already had the stevedoring operation in the Gulf. So I think that gave us a little bit more of a lever. And we've already been operating some terminals. And they were kind of going out of that business, the terminal operation business. So we ended up signing a 10 year contract with Trico. And we had been all their business. I mean, literally all their business. They, we ran their implant locomotives, we ran their scrapyard. We ran their dock. We did all their stevedoring. We did 100% of their barging. The only thing we didn't do was melt or make steel. And uh, that was, we had a, I think at one point I had 56 people working down there. Um, and they filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy in 1999. <laughs> um, but we worked through all that. Uh, Nucor, the Gator, Nucor ended up buying that plant. Shortly after Ingram bought Ohio River, Nucor bought that plant. So, made a call on them the very first day that Ingram bought Ohio River. Um, I got a call from Nashville and uh, met them at the Huntsville Airport and made a call on New a joint call on Nucor. Um, but my life, and I, I'm probably the only sales guy that I know that's never sold one pound of export coal. Not, not one. Everything I've done has been I have coal customers, but they were they were domestic, and um, I had a contract at one time with ADM, where we would move all of the coal into their facilities off the Ohio River, um, and even though they had their own barge line, <laughs> um, I kind of went around Arco with the guy named Terry Wells, who was in their procurement group, and, and did a deal with him. So my career is a little bit weird; it, it took a different path, but I think because I had this entrepreneurial um, drive. I had the freedom at Ohio River Company to kind of run with it. And um, it didn't make a lot of money initially because they, uh, I don't know how they had it on the books. But so I started chasing northbound and southbound and lighting and looking at landing up traffic pattern and saying, let's let's maximize um, empty barge, uh, loaded barge days and minimize empty barge movements. 
So we started being very laser focused on backhaul that fit reload points uh, into the mid-upper, the Illinois, the Cincinnati South, um, walked away from some business um, and just got really laser focused to try and get about 70% utilization on um, backhaul to forehaul. And it, it took off. And um, my career then kind of followed along with that. I got involved in the Tennessee Tom Baby Waterway. We were doing some wood chip business down there and some log business. Had the opportunity to be the chairman of the Tenton Waterway Development Council for a couple of years. A guy named Don Walden, who um, actually has a lock named after him. They can't name it after. They can't make it official because they won't do it till got till Don's dead. And we, we'd rather have Don alive still than than dead. So uh, he was very instrumental in getting the company and then me involved in the Ten Tom. So uh, I was very active until just even last year. Um, when I went to work at Ohio River Company, Jack Geary was the CEO. I think Ingram still has a, has a John D. Geary floating around out there. Uh, Jack was a man of men. He had this white hair, this big white mustache, his, his pipe that came down and turned up and he smoked this black Cavendish tobacco and his very deep, raspy voice. Looked like a, he looked like somebody important when he walked into a room. And at the Ohio Road Company's office, they had this balcony where all the executives sat and they had Russ. I was there that long one day, and I got a call one day from our operations people in Paducah who needed to give some parts to an Ingram boat that had broke down. And I said, fine, just let them in the warehouse, give them what they want, have them sign for it, and we'll send them a bill. And Mr. Geary called me that Saturday morning. He said, Steve, this is Jack Geary. Did you just talk to somebody in Ingram? I said, yeah, I did. I told him to go to the warehouse, we give them what they need, and send them a bill. He said, it doesn't work that way, Steve. He said, we don't work that way in this business. Open the doors, and what they want, Bronson will turn the assets at a time in the future when she gets them replaced. I said, I don't know who Bronson is. He said, Bronson Ingram is Ingram. He is my friend. It's there. So I called the warehouse manager. I said, just open the doors, give them what they want, but keep a log of what they're taking. <laughs> and within about three or four weeks later, the truck pulls up with all replacement parts and that's how I learned about the, the uniqueness of the barge business. And it is a unique industry, Tim. It's, you know it. I mean, you're involved in it. It's, it gets in your blood. And I have so many people in my life that helped me along that didn't have to. They didn't know me, um, but they did help me. And they helped me in my career. And some of it was through some pretty tough conversations, through some brutal honesty that um, I needed. And because of those people like George Anderson I talked about and Steve Frazier and there's a guy in Paducah, his name's Ken Wheeler. I first met Ken a long time ago and Ken Wheeler was Mr. Paducah. I think Ken single-handedly built the, um, the facilities in Paducah, one of which is the, um, uh, not, not the aquarium, what is it? The, uh, arts program down there. He was instrumental in those buildings that went in when they brought in all the artists. Uh, he was very instrumental in the state of Kentucky, uh, building and growing the two-year schools. Um, and, and he got me really involved in the, at the state level as well. I'm still involved at the state level 
in Frankfurt on a waterway advisory board to the governor because of Ken Wheeler. Um, but people like that, uh, we was a guy named Dave Flanagan, who was the first salesman I ever met at Ohio River. David would leave Cincinnati and head to Paducah for a sales trip, and he would be gone the entire week. And <laughs> he'd stay all night down there in the weekend and come back. So it was a two-week trip for David to go to Paducah and back. But he stopped everywhere along the river, every dock, every facility. He knew everybody. They knew him. And anything that went on in that waterways, he knew it. And I got to travel with him some and, and learn his skill sets. Uh, a guy named Bill Bray, who is the CEO of um, CMB Marine, Carlisle Bray. Bill uh, worked at Ohio River for a few years. I got to kind of hang around with him a few times on some road trips and see how he did things. And I learned a lot from Bill. And, and to this day, I mean, I, I still... So I retired, still did business with Bill when he left and started his own company up. So um, there was a guy, you know him, you know his son, you know Matt D'Amico. Matt's dad, Dick, was a competitor of mine and a very dear friend. Uh, we got along really, really well. Um, I think we both liked a little bit of the deal that they have with coin collecting and things like that. And we were on a couple of committees together and, and, um, I was terribly heartbroken when he got sick, but it was going on about the same time Ingram was buying Ohio River. And he called me one day and he said, you come to work here. This is where you need to be. And uh, he was very instrumental in me coming to work in Ingram. And, uh, but he, I, think, I don't know that Dick lasted more than maybe a year or so after, after the acquisition and me passed. So, um, that fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> if you look at Matt, you can see his dad. Um, so I guess by being um, coached, mentored by so many people, you have a, if you almost feel like you'd have to pay that back. So um, about 10 years ago, I decided, well, I'm getting on the other side of 40, so it's time to start switching up a little bit and, and um, mentoring some people along the way. So that's what I did. And it worked out to, uh, I think, to the benefit of, of me being able to help some of the younger people in the industry uh, find their way. I had to have had to have some difficult discussions with some people along the way that I had to have those with me. And I felt like it's only fair to have those with, with others. And um had the opportunity to rebuild the sales department at Ingram and took that on with a passion, put together what I think is the best sales team ever in this industry. Um, men and women, a very diversified force that uh, I'm very proud of, of them, um, which includes Chuck Arnold. I mean, I, yeah, Chuck's the chief commercial officer, but, uh, he was one of my mentors, one of my, my, I had to mentor him through some things. So he came from treasury and um, went into Dan Martin's job. And he'll tell you the story that, that there was one day when, uh, I think he mentioned it at the christening, that I didn't know Chuck Harley at all. And we're making a call on a customer and I said, I'm going to do this. And then the media just saying no. And he's like, no, 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 don't do that. I need, I need a win. I had two losses in a row. I said, don't worry about it. We got this. So I walked in and dropped the bomb in the room and it blew up and we ended up getting the deal done. And 
Well, I said, how'd you do that? And I'm like, well, just certain cultures you can do that with. I knew this was, in order to get this done in one visit, we got to pretty much clear the air and let's just get to it. And uh, I promised him, I said, uh, I'll make you a salesman. We'll teach you the business and we'll help you be successful as long as you're fair. What was that bomb you dropped, if, if you can get into those details? Um, when you walk into a meeting sometimes, you know what the customer really needs because you've researched them. You've done your homework. You know going in that maybe in this particular case, they need you more than you need them. And there are just some customers that like to play games. And, and uh, there are certain times when you don't have time to play games. And in this particular case, I believe it was an account that we needed it. So I said that we wanted it, we didn't need it. And they knew that, and I knew that. And I kind of just said, you know, yeah, I brought Chuck in introducing to you. I said, uh, it may be the last introduction. You know, it doesn't really matter what, you know, we'd like to have the business, but we don't need the business. Um, could be business, big business. And they didn't call my bluff. And <laughs> we finalized the deal there. And uh, I learned that, that from a guy years ago that if you're sincere, when you drop a bomb in the room, those that really don't have the power to decide aren't there when the smoke rises. You drop the bomb and you realize who you're really negotiating with. Sometimes that's surprising, but necessary in certain circumstances. Um, we went into a meeting years ago when they were building the Lafarge Wholesome Cement Plant in St. Genevieve. And I flew in with uh, our CEO and our chief commercial officer and we walked into the meeting. There's a story about getting the meeting. That's a different for a different time. We walked into the meeting that's full of all these corporate people from Wholesome. And this one young gun, Rob, who was kind of overseeing the meeting, they did an introduction and they went around and said, Oh, by the way, we have our consultant on the phone, which was a guy by the name of Pete Hubbard. And Pete had retired from Ohio River Company. Pete was probably my biggest mentor. And we went around everyone and they introduced us. So we introduced you to our, to our, to our consultant, Pete Hubbard. He was on the phone. He wasn't there in the meeting. He said, hi to everybody. He said, how you doing, Steve Reno? I said, I'm doing good, Pete. How's Judy? And this lady interrupted the meeting. And she said, uh, excuse me. This is supposed to be a level playing field. That's all I'm here to assure you, ma'am, that it's not. Woody, I can tell that. She said, no, she don't, I don't think you would understand. I said, I did work for Pete for 13 years. I said, and uh, he fired me 17 times. So I guarantee you this playing field's not level. <laughs> and this young gun, Rob said, uh, well, you know, he said, you guys were the 10th highest bid of all the quotes we got. And my bomb was, but yet you invited us in. I said, you know, it doesn't really matter what the rates are, Rob. Doesn't really matter what the terms are. What matters is that this is a good fit for Wholesome and for Ingram. We'll get to the rest of it.
But if you or we decide it's not a good long-term fit, doesn't matter what the price is. We're not going to do a deal. This is make sure we all can bring to the table what best fits both companies. And we'll get to them. We'll get to the number. I'm not worried about the number. And we went on to be pretty good friends. And as a matter of fact, um, Tyler uh, worked for him. And I hired him away from them <laughs> a few years ago. So um, that's dropping a bomb, gentle bomb, you know. There was another story. Again, I'm not sure what details you can you can discuss, but uh, there was a dinner you attended with Chuck that I think you had to bail on. Um, well, it was, the, it was the same customer, actually. Okay. And uh, they had a new um, senior level person that came in. And she um, we went to dinner and the kitchen flooded and the restaurant got closed. We had to go somewhere else. And she was getting mad and we got down there and um, she started defending her company and Chuck being the good Ingram trooper he is started defending Ingram and um, we were all drinking. I was drinking tonic water with a twist of lime. See, one of the things you learn in sales is when you get to the restaurant, you find your waiter, the bartender, and you say, when I order a gin and tonic with a twist, I don't want the gin. And um, so I was still sober. Uh, although I could get loud and act like I wasn't, but I was stone sober. And it got a little bit out of control on her part, for the most part, not his. And I said, you know, I think at this point, neither of you are making any sense, so we're just going to end this. We're going to go back to the hotel, and we'll, we'll talk about this another day. <laughs> so we just shut it down and called it a night and went back to the hotel. And it was good. I mean, he was, he was learning. He was learning the business, and... Um, Smart guy. He's a very smart guy. Very intelligent guy, and very dedicated to the company. Um, and I'm proud. Like I said, I was, like I said, I'm proud. Very proud of what he's achieved. I'm very proud of the team we put together. And um, I only see great success for Ingram going forward. I think uh, you have an ownership that is committed to the business. They're looking at other ways to improve um, the company by doing value-added services. Uh, I think that's the future. I think that's a big part of the future. You're in the middle of it right now with ILS. That's a big, it's a big, that is going to be the leader. That's going to be the driver going forward and the bars line will be a piece of that. But anytime you can, and that was always my baby. I always, I always like to do value added services with customers so that the barge contract was just the next piece that you had to negotiate. But, you know, in the whole scheme of things, partnering with customers, um, was always my driver, finding ways to grow each other's business together. Um, like I said, we built 100 barges at one time for Staley. It was unheard of back then to commit to something like that, but the company did it. And Ingram was even more willing. Um, I wish we would have we would have uh, started this thing 15 years ago. I would have been right in the center of ILS <laughs> or Barge Plus, whatever they're calling it now. Uh, yeah, your future is bright there. They they have a, they're a great company. They have a lot of young talent, a lot of young ownership. Um, it's hard to leave. Uh, I had a couple of health issues that came up. I had a heart event in ninety in two thousand and nineteen, vacationing with the kids, and uh, that caused some not long term effects, just more reflective. Um, and of course, then I had double pneumonia from COVID 
uh, spent a week in a human hospital. That didn't help, <laughs> especially my so much. It helped my wife and I have a lot of long conversations. <clears throat> and and uh, what I didn't say it was back in '03, I was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, shortly after Amber bought us, I went through a, seri a series of surgeries and radiation and uh, some quiet time, reflective time. And I ended up in 2007 um, getting into a graduate program at the Athenaeum of Ohio. And three years later was uh, ordained a Roman Catholic deacon. So I've christened boats. I've baptized babies. I've preached to church. I've done weddings. I've done funerals. All right. Uh, today, this morning, I preached at 1130 Mass and stayed over at an old customer from mine, from my back in the barging days. Uh, I have uh, married both of their kids and baptized four of their grandkids, and I baptized the fifth one today. <laughs> a guy named Todd Vallette. He worked for CGB. He worked for ACB all for years, and he went to work for CGB. It was his daughter's uh, third child. So um, got involved in that. And uh, I can tell you that when I wasn't well with the COVID, um, I know that there were hundreds of people in the industry, hundreds, texting me, emailing me, calling me and praying for me. That's the industry we work in. That's way it gets into your blood it becomes a part of who you are and you don't just walk away from that you don't just shake that off um there's a lot of competitors that are friends um customers that are friends employees that are friends it's just and you know it. I mean, you're living it too it's 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 an industry that's very unique um and one that i never imagined myself being in uh, never looked back though when i came over never crossed my mind to, hey, maybe I still want to be a cop. Uh, and I didn't. Um, blessed, yeah, blessed beyond words. Orange named two Tobos after me. Uh, that's kind of cool. I'm going to get into that. Uh, a couple more questions for you, and then we can kind of, I guess, bookend your, your professional career, and then we'll finish out. Um, <clears throat> had you ever been near a towboat before you... Answered that ad. Well, we had a ferry that ran between Cincinnati and Kentucky to, so to get to the airport to take the ferry over from where I lived. And the, the towboats I always thought were a nuisance because it stopped the ferry from running when the towboats came by. So, or when we go down and fish along the river with my dad at night with a buddy of his, and um, they would come by. You couldn't even hear them. You could just hear the water like swishing. You know, like that must be a towboat. And then they, they would muddy the water up and we wouldn't catch any fish. So I had, my memories of the river industry weren't fond. <laughs> well, did you, were you able to find time when you were on the boats observing all the mechanical, all the mechanics? Uh, did you have some spare time to go kind of sightsee? Well, do you have any good memories of running on those boats for the first time? I absolutely do. I um, fell in love with the river the first time I went up, went up the river uh, on a, um, I think it was the El Fiore. Got off in Huntington, so actually South Point, Ohio, and it was a chief engineer um, named Jim Pinkerman. And Jim was an original was originally one of the engineer the engineer on the Orco, the old paddle wheel Orco that caught fire and sank in downtown Cincinnati. So I met him 
that day and he was overhauling one of the Fairbanks Morris boats. And I was on the Fairbanks Morris boat checking in and you know, checking the, all the all the, the parts. And he's made a comment that, well, I guess I have to go over here to get some help from one of these laborers to help me work on these gearboxes I'm overhauling. I said, oh, I'll help you. He said, put the little coveralls on over there. So I put the coveralls on and four days later, we finished overhauling the boat. <laughs> Slept on it, stayed on it, ate on it. And uh, from that point, yeah, fell in love with it. Um, met some, <clears throat> I got baptized um, on the river. We had a red circle unit, which was ocean going barges and boats too. We had three of them. And two of them were self unloaders. And one just ran green back and forth between San Juan and the U.S. Well, self unloaders ran phosphate rock from our Tampa terminal to Uncle Sam. And they were massive. Oh, I didn't know that at the time. I was a baby. Uh, I went up to Uncle Sam with the port engineer, jumped on the barge, which was about 600 feet long, but it was level with the dock. Jumped on, climbed down in the bowels of the barge, had this conveyor system all over it. I was literally walking between the walls of the outer wall and the inner wall of the, of the vessel, of the, of the barge, uh, doing pinhole checks on metals, identifying all the mechanicals. I also got to set the PM program up. Um, came up, had lunch, went back down, wasn't paying attention, went back down, came up another six or eight hours later, we were done, and now we're 22 feet in the air. Look over the side, I'm like, well, that. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> How do you get down? The port engineer was like, well, you just climb down. All right. You go first. So it was kind of inverted into like a ship. He climbs down and he just gets down with about six feet, jumps off onto the dock. I'm like, all right, I'm like 20 years younger than this guy. I'm not, I'm taking, I'm taking this challenge on. So I strap my bag on my shoulder and I start climbing down. And of course, I'm also 100 pounds heavier than him. I give it about 10 feet and I'm like, yeah, I can't hang out anymore. So I just drop, hit the deck, hit the ground, roll. I started going rolling into the river. He grabbed me by the my backpack I had on it, pulled me out, and all the guys in the boat were at the back of the, on the stern of the barge were laughing. Because the backside of the barge was straight up and down. It wasn't inverted. So but it just walked back to back and kind of climbed down like a ladder. So those are fond memories. <laughs> <laughs> without a doubt my career yeah that's that's one way to get into it for sure <laughs> so fast forward i know there were two vessels i didn't realize the first was also an ingram boat at first yeah it was the uh cajun and it ran up in huntington we moved it to paducah for a while sat there doing nothing and then we had this operation in loudon tennessee with staley Dayton Law. we needed a fleet boat there so we moved it up there and um, Greg Phillip, our CEO at the time, called me one day at, right before Pittsburgh Traffic Club and said, we're going to christen this boat in your name. So my dad was still alive and my brother was still alive. So we had a big christening celebration down in Loudoun at the, at the customer's plant. We had when all the employees were there and the, the Staley people were there. And uh, that boat ran in there until we lost that contract. Uh, or walked, I think we walked away from the country. I don't know if we lost it. And they moved it back to Paducah. And it really wasn't a good fleet boat. It was didn't have flanking runners on it at the time. So they modified it and did that. I think they might have beefed up the horsepower a little bit on it. I went down to reserve for a little bit. I don't think it worked that well down there. And then I signed the contract with the salt company to move all the salt out of Cote Blanche. 
And along with that freight contract was we're taking over their harbor operation as well. Well, I thought we were going to take it over, but it ended up we farmed that out the turn. And uh, David Finley um, and that their group bought that boat, Steve Alley, and they had, according to what I was told by Mecklenburg, our lawyer, that they weren't allowed to use the name. So they took my name off the side of it and called and changed it to the Zenyatta, which was a, uh, a horse that ran in the Derby or something. I don't know. David was in the horses. So they stripped me of my boot and named the Zenyatta and put it right at the operation I just ended up signing a contract with. So I think David North or somebody, when, when the Steve Alley was first came out before we had the party, they dispatched it to the salt mine. And there's a photo of it pushing up against the barge and the old Steve Alley pushing up with it as well. So there, I, got a, I got a photo of that right now. So uh, yeah, that was, it was an Ingram. Ingram did that in 05, I think it was. And then uh, Oren made a comment at my retirement party in January of last year that that he felt bad that he had sold uh, that boat. He said, it was an old boat. And he looked over at me and he said, it didn't, it didn't run much. He looked over at me and he, he kept breaking down all the time. He looked over at me and I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right, my party. <laughs> he said, but I felt bad about it. And he said, so uh, so I'm building these seven new boats and one of these is going to have your name on the side. So originally we are going to do it in July of last year with the other boats that were doing it reserve. And uh, we were volunteering at a, um, nonprofit in the city and someone put a box behind me and I tripped over it didn't know it was there obviously my leg got caught in these two slats I went that way my leg stayed stationary and I ripped my quad tendon off my kneecap so I went into surgery and then had a I was in a leg brace for 13 weeks so I couldn't make it to reserve for the christening couldn't even get on the plane my leg was locked straight out so we, they decided to push it off until we just went through the last month. So it was an amazing event. Absolutely humbling beyond words. So I can never say, repay the thanks I have for the Ingram family for doing that. There's no greater legacy in this industry that we, that we love beyond that. That's it. Sure. Yeah. So they haven't done twice. Um, I have the looking at the old one and the new one right now on my wall. They're sitting there side by side. So <laughs> at that at that point, I'm also retired. Not a lot else to do, right? <laughs> sure, without a doubt. Well, look, one more question, and we'll call this uh, we'll call this one a wrap. Do you have sure. any any final messages? I know, of course, you, your passion for the industry, just just like mine, as you said. But do you have a message for new people coming in from shoreside and on the on the marine end? Yeah, I do. Um, I would say learn this business. This business is historic. This business is the least expensive to operate in. This business is the cleanest business to operate in. So if you have a heart for that, um, this business is one that doesn't move fast. So if you're in a fast-paced environment, this isn't for you. But the barge business is unlike any business I've ever been involved with. It is full of selfless, hardworking, dedicated American people, Americans that, that love their country, 
They love their families. They give up so much of their time to do what we do. And it's a bit of a thankless industry, but it's also such a rewarding industry. The things that we know that, that what we do saves this country money, lots and lots of money. And it, it's a fun business. People don't know a lot about boots and barges. So, you know, I get the, you get the opportunity to give back, go to the local grade schools and take a little towboat model with you and help educate them on what we do for a living. Um, uh, if you like fast paced, high tech, we ain't it. We're not, we're not gonna be. If you want a place that you can call home, you can work hard and you can be a cop's son and through the help of many people become the vice president of sales for the largest barge line. If I can do it, anybody can do it. I'm not the brightest guy out there, but there are people willing to help everyone along the way. And we're there and that's kind of what the industry is. We help each other. And through that, we grow together. And this industry has always had my back. There's people in this industry I know I can call anytime for personal reasons as well as business reasons. And that's just the way this business is. Like I said, I love it. I always have when I got in it. Um, if you're a bit self-centered and driven, you probably aren't going to succeed. Because of the people that work in our business, they see through that. We see through the phoniness. And those people have come and gone. The ones that are true to their beliefs, true to their heart, true to the faith, true to the country, those are the people that work in our business. <laughs> um, and that's who I want to associate myself with. And uh, like I said, I, I was glad I answered that blind ad in uh, 1983. And I'm forever indebted to so many people. The list, I can't even, I was writing a list the other day of the names that, that popped up as I was writing this. Uh, they're long gone, but they had a major impact in my life and in, in my career. And you can be crazy successful in this business. And the success is not just your bank account. And although you have a nice one of this too, if you're focused on what you're doing in the industry and in the company, I've always um, wondered when I, before I went to work, I wondered why do people that I know that went to work there never leave? I had friends that left the, you know, the company we were at and went to work over there. I could never figure out, well, why are you so content there until I went to work there? And I met Oren and I met his mom and his brother, John, and then I met the boys and, and the people that work there. It's a true family culture. I can tell you some stories about Oren. We were together in a car, which I will not. Uh, but trust me when I tell you that this man has a huge heart. He absolutely loves the company and the people there. They truly do. And they don't just say it, they live it. And I've experienced it, I've seen it. Um, when I had the heart attack, um, I texted him and I think Chuck, Chuck and somebody else said, yeah, I'm going to be out next week. Having a heart event, going to the Knoxville airport, Knoxville uh, hospital. And my wife was in the front seat and I think Chuck called her and said, uh, take Steve to the 
Knoxville Airport. We're going to fly the plane over with a cardiac team to bring him back to Vanderbilt. Who does that? And I said, no, we're not. I was in denial. Well, in hindsight, probably would have, been, <laughs> would, have been, would have been the best idea, but we didn't do that. So my point is, is that um, it's not just Ingram. There's other companies in our business, too, that, that are the same way. Been around a long time, and they're, they're honest, they're faithful, they're truthful. And you can't not do this and not love it. Because you're just not going to do it then. You're going to get out of it. And once you get that water in your blood, muddy as it is sometimes, it, it, it doesn't leave. You know? It just stays there. And that's great. I think that's wonderful. I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity I had at Ohio River. Um, and more so at Ingram. Best move I made was when it may be an offer to come to work for, for Ingram and, and I, and I said, yes. As Dan Mecklenburg, Bill Morelli, uh, Dick Tomeko, Ronnie Pritchard, a uh, whole group of them, um, Dan Martin. Yeah, I mean, it was just all the pressure to, to you know, just check it out, just see it, try it. Best career move I ever made, hands down. Uh, Mr. Alley, I think that'll just about do it. I do appreciate your time today. You're welcome, my friend. It took a few months to get this done, but you know, when you retire, you get busy. <laughs> we'll keep in touch. If I do anything, Tim, I'll, I'll run everybody. Thanks a lot. Take care. You bet. You too. Bye.